I'm David Flint, and this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, the nation's exciting new media platform. And this is a special tribute today to Her Late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. I have two colleagues with me today, uh, Fred Paul, whom you would be watching on ADH-TV, and Alan Jones. And may I say about Alan, in 1999, there was only one significant voice in all of the Australian media that supported or gave some credence to the no case. And what Alan said in relation to people who phoned in on that occasion was quite superb because it became one of the slogans. ACM had a number of slogans at that time. But what Alan said to people who called in was if you don't know, vote no. Mm -hmm. If you don't know, vote no. And that mm -hmm. will no doubt be the current call mm -hmm. in the next two referendums, mm -hmm. oh, I yeah, would think. Absolutely. Well, in, uh, we, uh, our tribute today is to Her Late Majesty. I'm old enough to recall when she spoke from Cape Town. When she turned 21, I was a boy, but that broadcast was broadcast across the, the world and we heard it in Australia and she said those memorable world, words, my whole life, hmm. whether it be long or short, will be dedicated to your service and the service of the great imperial family to which we all belong. And that was, that was then followed in the coronation. Hmm. When George the Sixth died, it was a shock to us, shocked us all in Australia. But she followed that in her coronation oath, which she took seriously. Some people today don't take their oaths seriously, but she did. And during her 70 years, 70 years, she followed that to the letter. She dedicated herself to us. And she did that on every day of the 70 years. She was a meticulous and very dutiful sovereign. And I remember seeing the thank you note that she sent to people at the time of the Platinum Jubilee, the last Jubilee, the Jubilee of the 70 years, in which she signed it and she sent it to all sorts of people who sent her congratulations. And she signed it, your servant, mm. not your queen, your servant, Elizabeth. Mm. And I think that in many ways did, in fact, reflect what she was. Well, she was our monarch. And the monarchy, the constitutional monarchy, is the oldest institution in this country. It's the second oldest institution in Europe after the papacy. It is, a, it is an institution which we will be very careful to do away with, as some people are calling for. That monarchy, that monarchy evolved like so many good things about English constitutional development. That monarchy evolved. It wasn't some academic sitting in a tower, some madman deciding this is how you must be governed. This evolved through trial and error. And the latest version of the constitutional monarchy, which followed the mistakes made by a very good king, George III, but he made mistakes. He was too involved in pushing the war in relation to the Americans. He should have taken Edmund Burke's advice and not to have a war with the Americans. But anyway, since then, 
the king, the sovereign, has stepped away from the government, from, the, from an actual role in the government, and we now have a constitutional monarchy in which the king or queen has emerged to provide leadership above and beyond politics, something the Americans don't have. So the first thing really is providing this leadership beyond politics, which we're seeing today in the United Kingdom, and we have it in Australia. And the second thing is, in this Westminster system, this delicate Westminster system, where governments are formed on the floor of the house, the, the, the monarchy, the monarch, and her representatives, or his representatives, the governors general, and the governors, plays a very important role as a constitutional guardian, best seen in the most obvious version in Australia in 1975, when Gough Whitlam failed to follow the constitutional rules. And the Governor-General finally was forced to act. But there are other occasions when governors and Governors-General act. And we had that in particularly in 1975. We, we in Australia are fortunate. We have, we have the Queen and King, but we also have in Australia, a Governor-General and State Governors. And they're appointed in the best way we know. They're appointed like judges. Now, that doesn't always work out, but it's better than having them elected, because if they were elected, they would come with a mandate. They would come after a campaign. They would be politicians. In fact, it's not very well known. In, uh, in the first Constitutional Convention in 1891, a serious proposal was made that the Constitution be so drafted that the Governor-General could soon evolve into an elected politician. And this was sniffed out by the delegates there, and especially by Sir Samuel Griffith. They could see that this would develop something like the American Constitution. It would produce a person who would be elected and who would take take the powers, the powers on paper of the Governor-General seriously, and that was overwhelmingly rejected. Didn't have to even go to the full convention. It was rejected. We, we've been through this before. It's not something new. Can I just butt in there, David, because the current proposed model by the Republicans is that the various parliaments around Australia will nominate a candidate for president or head of state, and then the federal parliament joint sitting will choose which one of a field of about 11. <clears throat> As my friend Tim Blair, who's a uh, columnist for the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, points out, when those... Th uh, oh, and the Republicans insist that the head of state will be a strictly ceremonial role, mm. what would that mean for that election, that, that campaign... Oh, oh, sorry, no, the, the, the people will vote of, from the 11 candidates... Mm. So what would that campaign look like? It would be 11 people walking around the country or flying around the country saying, I'm very good at cutting ribbons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they'd come with a campaign. They'd come with a yeah. mandate. Of course they would. It would, be, mm -hmm. it would evolve into something political. Uh, I, if I might just say, I don't think it's most probably appropriate to be talking about um, whether we're going to support Republicans mm -hmm. or constitutional monarchists because uh, we are still in mourning mm -hmm. over yes. the death of a remarkable woman. You made the point that, uh, of that speech at Cape Town that she made when she was 21. But from the age of 10, 
she first knew, she never imagined, of course, that she'd be a queen, nor did her father mm. imagine he'd be king. But the abdication led to the rather hesitant and very tentative and very shy and lacking in self-confidence, King George VI mm. became the monarch. And from that point when Elizabeth was 10, it was clear to her, and I think Margaret said to her, the sister, does this mean one day you'll be queen? And she said they were just children. And she said, yes. And Margaret said, oh, my God, thinking what responsibilities does that convey? And then I think one of the, the factors that has been omitted here, is, which has led to the embrace by the world of this woman, is that when you think clearly, I mean, her first, she was 25 when she became the monarch. Her first meeting and her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. He was 78 she was 25. Uh, he was born in 1874. Liz Truss was born in 1875, uh, 1975. So her first prime minister was born 100 years before her last prime minister. Mm. And yet there was this beautiful woman. There aren't enough pictures shown of Princess Elizabeth as she moved into womanhood and she married this man that she'd loved since she was a teenager. Mm but she was a physically beautiful woman. And if you add then the stature and status of the monarchy to the youth and beauty of Elizabeth, then the world was captured. That, that We think that only happened under Diana, but this happened under the Queen. I mean, she would never have imagined when she was in the Treetops Hotel in Kenya. And ironically, or metaphorically perhaps, an eagle flew over the tree that she was sitting in and they thought that that was the moment at which her father had died. The next day, in a black dress, she was confronting her first Prime Minister, 78-year-old Winston Churchill. So, I mean, the story began there, and it began as people believed a princess should be. Every, every image of a princess was that she'd be beautiful, mm. and she'd be rich, and she had power. And suddenly, here was a person who fitted all those criteria, but she was the monarch and she was the queen. And those who, were, who embraced her really didn't know much about queens and and constitutional monarchies and ever they just thought it was fantastic that this woman and I remember as a kid I thought that when I you know stood on those dirty streets at Oakey you know waving and every time she moved past you thought she was looking at you um, so it's it's it started with that sense of uh, amazement and awe mm. at a beautiful young woman having all this responsibility and doing it with such remarkable calm and dignity and that she carried right through her life. I remember, that, that just, just reminded me of when I first saw her. I was a schoolboy and we decided, three of us decided that we would see the Queen. She was coming the next morning. Mm. And to get permission from your parents to stay out all night was something which was quite extraordinary, rarely given. But uh, we got permission and we decided to sleep in Macquarie Street in sleeping bags so we could have a position close to the front mm. and see mm. the Queen. Yes. And we went to a film because they, they, as a special thing, they had midnight films and we saw How to Marry a Millionaire with Marilyn Monroe. Yes. But to see them when they came along Macquarie Street, mm. this magnificent couple in a Rolls Royce, mm. preceded by mm. by mounted police. And she was beautiful and yes. he was handsome. Yes, yes. This was the idealism of, yeah. wasn't it? Yes, it was. Queens and princesses. Yes. This is, it was an idealism about yes. it. She married the handsome man. Yes. 
Yes, they, they were a spectacular mm. couple. She'd already had a boy. Mm. Charles was left in uh, England. Mm. They hadn't been married that long. But uh, she looked magnificent. Yes, and if you, if you transpose all of that to now, mm. in the, as I made this point last night in the last couple of days, uh, there were blokes, you know, drinking in pubs and they found out that the Queen had died. They didn't know why, but they just collectively thought we we must go to the palace. And they didn't know why. The, there was just that feeling within, and I think we all have that feeling. Yes. I thought Boris Johnson made this wonderful point. He said, we're all a bit like children here. We keep imagining she's going to appear again yes. somewhere. Yes, it was a, even though she was 96, it came to me as a mm. tremendous shock. Mm. I thought she would linger for many years. Yes, yes. But it, it well, when you're terrible. shaking hands with the with the Prime Minister on the Tuesday mm. and there's a stick and there are the pictures and they went all over the world and on Thursday she's passed away. Mm. It's very hard to digest that, I think. The charming part about all that footage that came out on the weekend was that everyone had a role. Like, as you say, blokes in pubs just thought, well, we have to go to the palace mm. now. Mm. In a monarchy, everyone knows what their position is and it's not it's not necessarily a hierarchy it's more like as she said from day one it's more like a family and you know which is which contrasts enormously to what has since evolved what america has since evolved into which is celebrity culture you know americans and and people who who disparage the monarchy think that the monarchy represents something that's redundant but it doesn't it represents traditional values, and I think we in Australia are enormously lucky to still be part of it. We hope we can maintain those values. I think we ask a lot of them, don't we? Uh, For a 25-year-old to learn of the death of her father and to arrive in London on a plane and show no emotion, Mm. Uh, and equally, Charles, who was very close to his mother, not so close to the father, there was a lot of tension between Charles and Prince Philip, because Prince Philip was the, you know, the outdoor man, mm. and he thought by sending Charles to Gordonston, I'll make a man of you, mm. and he absolutely hated the whole business up there. He did a couple of terms at Geelong Grammar, which he quite liked, and it gave him that sense of embrace uh, to Australia. But for Charles then to have to appear immediately and speak to the world, and this person with whom he was had a deep affinity mm. has passed on, and to do it and hold back your emotions. I'll tell you what, it's more than most of us could do because, in fact, when we heard the news, we were emotional. Mm, When I heard the speech, I was emotional. Mm. Well, the way he spoke about his mother. So we do ask a lot of them, don't we? There's that quiet and dignified reserve which is there, which many of us lack. Yes, and we saw the film of the Accession Council. We saw what Charles had to do there. Just think of the Queen. She had to do the same. We didn't. There were no films of that. They, mm. they, that was kept mm. private. Mm. But she would have been surrounded by very old men. Mm. Men of. Uh, I think the the the, uh, the proclamation referred to men of quality. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and and she would have been surrounded by really elderly men. There would be no women there. Mm. In those days, there were no women. I don't think on mm. the on the Privy Council. But you know, Fred talked about you know values and so on. I mean. When you think of that very amusing occasion when the Queen and she was just meeting with different people and she went up to speak to this young girl, this is very recently, and the mobile phone went off 
the poor little thing, her mobile phone went off. Well, of course, she was hopelessly embarrassed. And the Queen just looked at her and she said, I think you better answer that. It might be someone important. (laughs) 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 Which sort of made the poor little girl even more embarrassed because how do you answer the phone in front of the Queen? But but she was not without that. I mean, she was a wonderful mimic, the Queen. Oh, yes, and she she did Bob Hawke brilliantly. Uh, (laughs) Boris Yeltsin, she did. She's a tr- tremendous mimic, and she was so in the eyes of many. And I have to confess, I I have had fairly lengthy conversations with her, and she was so normal. She was such a a, a mother. She came in, you know, the dress that had the belt there and the handbag, because I told last night the stories of the handbag, which is really very funny, but it's quite true. The handbag was very symbolically significant because she wore it on the left arm. And when she shifted the handbag to the right arm, a lady in waiting knew she's bored. I've got to go and get rid of her. There's someone here boring her to death. And then, of course, she put the handbag on the floor when she was at a table. So if she then was further bored, she'd fiddle with her wedding ring and they knew straight away to sort of come and relieve her. In other words, get me out of here, so to speak. But I, I remember we were in the green room and, um, and with the whole team when I was coaching the Wallabies and the, the, the engagement was for half an hour. Well, we were there for two hours, and one of my players, Cameron Lilliclap, had broken his ankle. It was in plaster. And she came up to me. She knew everything. She said, oh, you're the coach. And just like that, uh, yes, ma'am. And uh, so, what's wrong with you? She said, just like, what's wrong with you? Oh, he said, ma'am, I've broken my ankle. Oh, she said, Edward plays rugby. And I, this is what she said. She said, and I tell Philip that he better take Edward to rugby. I'm not. And don't come home and complain about being injured. This is the way she speaks. It was just like a mother, you see. And this was the day after Indira Gandhi had been assassinated. And she said to me, what do you think about Indira Gandhi? She said they're they're marching in the streets and and congratulating themselves. And I said, oh, it's awful stuff. She said, what what can you do? And I remember saying, ma'am, if you don't know what to do, there's not much hope for us. (laughs) But she was speaking just as a mother Mm. and she had that capacity to just engage and it was clear that she enjoyed the fact that we were sort of just ordinary people in a sporting environment that she didn't have to deal with you know red boxes and politicians and so on I mean she met with Margaret Margaret was tough as nails Margaret Thatcher so she had an audience with Margaret Thatcher once a week for 11 years. <laughs> that would test most people. <laughs> was the corgis present? Always present. Always present. And a barbecue with Paul Keating. Yes. So, you know, when he told her that we're really Republicans in Australia, and she, she was... The one thing about the Queen, in spite of everything we know about her, we never actually knew what she thought. Mm. You made that point before, completely apolitical, um, except there was one famous story when Anthony Eden, uh, Sir Anthony Eden, who had the audience of the Queen and told her that he was going to intervene in the Suez crisis. Mm. And the Queen is reportedly to have said, do you think so? which really was shorthand for saying, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, but that was, that was as far as yeah. she went politically, you know, do you think yeah. so? So uh, she was wiser than... She was, oh, my word, very well read, yes. very well read. But, but what was her affection for Australia, Alan? You'd know uh, that more than most people, wouldn't you? Her, her affection for Australia was mm. pretty deep, wasn't it? Well, and we've got to remember Australia's a long way away. Mm. You know, this is the other thing to have come as they did, you know, so early on in 1954. 
and go to 58 cities. I mean, they came by boat and plane and car and on foot. Mm. It was quite, quite extraordinary. And so there was that deep affinity early on, I think because of our dedication, our, our we haven't apologised. In fact, as you know, David, you've led the charge, we defended the monarchy. Mm. And I think we, we've got a lot to learn from uh, a constitutional monarchy in terms of the West. I mean, crit people criticise Britain and colonialism and so on. Well, I'm telling you what, the people who are criticising are the beneficiaries of the democracy that we've taken mm. from the British system here. So then when she decided where to go, she sent her son here to, to Geelong Grammar. And I think that affinity continued and they're going to come again. I understand that the new Prince and Princess of Wales, uh, William and Kate, will shortly visit here. But look, I brought something here which you'll be, which you'll be interested in, I'm sure, in that w one of these... Um, Oh, we should put this up on the screen, Sonny. <clears throat> One of these wonderful books that I've got here is called Letters of Note. Mm. And the first letter in the book is by Elizabeth R. R for Regina. Regina is the Latin for Queen. So she always signed off Elizabeth R. So the first letter in the book is from none other than Queen Elizabeth II, and it's, <laughs> don't laugh, it's a recipe for drop scones. <laughs> you with me? For drop scones. Now, she had just entertained, she had just entertained, in her own handwriting, it's handwritten. Where have we shot? There, there we are there. And she's writing to the president. This is President Eisenhower. This is a queen. <laughs> and it's quite lengthy. If I could, one, two, three, four, whatever. But if I might just share it, and she says, uh, Dear Mr. President, seeing a picture of you in today's newspaper standing in front of a barbecue grilling quail reminded me that I had never sent you the recipe for the drop scones, which I, uh, which I something you, which I, uh, something you at Balmoral, I can't read that word there. I now hasten, which I promised you, which I promised you at Balmoral. I now hasten to do so, and I do hope you'll find them successful. Uh, though the quantities are for 16 people, <laughs> where there are fewer, I generally put in less flour and milk. <laughs> 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 less flour and milk. But I use the other ingredients as stated. I've also tried using golden syrup or treacle <laughs> instead of sugar, and that can be very good too. I think the mixture needs a great deal of beating while making and shouldn't stand about too long before cooking. <laughs> we have followed with intense interest, this is the lovely bit too, intense interest and much admiration your tremendous journey to so many countries and feel we shall never again be able to claim that we, underlined, we are made to do too much or our, on our future tours, we are amazing. She said, we remember with such pleasure your visit to Balmoral, and I hope the photographs will be a reminder of the very happy day you spent with us. With all good wishes to you and Mrs Eisenhower, yours sincerely, Elizabeth R. And there's the recipe. <laughs> Which, yes, we can't, we can't, we can only show it to I can't put it up on the screen for you, but it's for those mothers and cooks and dads who cook out there. Oh, I'll get into trouble saying mothers when I know for all you cooks, men and women. It, she says four, four teaspoons of flour, four tablespoons of caster sugar, two teaspoons of milk, two whole eggs, two spoons of biocarbonate of soda, three teaspoons of cream of tartar, two tablespoons of melted butter. 
And she said, beat the eggs in a wake and said, you want to do Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. It reminds me of something I read years ago. I just suddenly remembered it. And that was when she got married, various people sent and government sent presents to the, the couple. And the Queensland government apparently sent boxes of tinned pineapple. <laughs> so she must have had so much tinned yeah. pineapple, she could have been using it. Uh, well, the flowers, isn't it? I mean, you see all these flowers being given. Mm. But as I said the other night, there are always ladies in waiting. She had about five ladies in waiting, and Baroness Hussey was, I suppose, the closest person to her. And it, it was all done so discreetly, so the bundle of flowers would go there, and she just quietly and Baroness Hussey would be there and then there'd be a policeman or someone yes. behind Baroness Hussey and they'd put them all in the car and then they'd be taken to some hospital yes. somewhere and they got rid of them, you know, quite comfortably. So, yeah. you know, all of those things, there were certain protocols, weren't yeah. they, that had to be followed. The, the other thing that we, we'd, um, don't sh I'm not sure we forget, but uh, like every person, like every human being, every family, she, she confronted great difficulties. Mm. Uh, not just political and international living, as I mentioned, sewers and so on. I mean, she lived through all of these and wars and all the rest mm. of it, and there was that great decorum and calm and sense of proportion, but her own personal family, there were significant problems in the family, not just the death of Margaret and the death of, of, uh, of her mother, but, you know, with the family itself, there were divorces and all yeah, that sort of stuff. And the marriage of Margaret, remember that? Mm. Yes, the, yes. The, uh, Margaret's... Uh, what a difficult task. Yes. Margaret fell in love with Group Captain Peter Townsend. And in those days, I mean, as a divorcee, um, there had to be, it was contrary to the Church of England, the Queen, this young Queen, she was 29, mm. the young Queen, she was the head of the Church of England. So authority had to be given permission had to be given from the monarch, mm. the sister for Margaret to marry the man she loved, yes. group captain Peter Townsend. And in what was a massive sort of international story, the Queen declined that permission. The Princess Margaret was broken, um, broken hearted about it all, or what people don't know, mm. because in those days, you know, there weren't a lot of flights, but she was mm. flown to Australia. And uh, she spent a lot of time now at what we know as Milton Park in the Southern Highlands. Oh. And a man who subsequently, and the Packers and the, the Packers and the Baileys uh, entertained her there, and they thought they should provide some entertainment on Saturday night. So they said, you know, old Frank Packer said, get, get someone, find a pianist somewhere. So they found this young bloke, pianist by the name of Jeff Harvey, and he stayed, Jeff's now dead, but he stayed with uh, the Packers and Channel 9 for all those years afterwards. And Jeff Harvey asked uh, the Princess Margaret, what's your favourite song to play, mm. would you say? And uh, now I've forgotten what the damn song was, but they played the, they played the yeah. song for her there at Milton Park in Australia. That, uh, that question of divorce reminded me of when Edward the, I, mm. I don't recall personally, of course, when Edward the Eighth was required to either, either give up Mrs. Simpson or abdicate. And the strongest objection, apparently, concerning the divorce came from Australia, from Joe Lyons, mm. the leader of the United States, yeah. who'd been a Labour leader, mm. but he was a very strong Catholic. Catholic, that's right. Oh, and yes. he, he very strongly mm. put the view to London mm. that, uh, that th yes. this could not be allowed. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope 
rather than speculation that Charles doesn't follow Charles I and Charles II. Of course, <laughs> Charles I, who was charged with treason and was beheaded, <laughs> and then Charles II was such a dissolute. I mean, he had so many mistresses yes. and all the rest of it. They said he had at least 11 children, but he didn't leave an heir. <laughs> so they hope that Charles III will have a bit more good yes. fortune than Charles I and yes. Charles II. Yes. <laughs> and Charles II, uh, on his deathbed, became, it is said, became a Catholic, yes. which was a forbidden religion yes, at that's the time. Tr- that's, that's true. Yes. But I was thinking of, uh, of you and the rugby team being received by the Queen. I remember seeing a shot of, uh, of the New Zealand All Blacks seeing the Queen and all these corgis were walk, walking around and they were amusing them. And then later on they said the, uh, the New Zealand team will be performing a haka and people came down to have a look at them doing the haka. But I noticed in that scene, all the corgis had been removed. Mm. Obviously, if the corgis had seen the haka, yeah, they would have gone off their heads. <laughs> well, at that uh, audience we had in the green room, I remember, again, coming back to the motherly nature of, of this woman. And she said to me, just as an aside, oh, by the way, she said, you know that Anne's in Delhi. Oh, of course, I had no idea Anne was in Delhi. Not Princess Anne. She said, you know, Anne is in Delhi. Mm. And she said, I rang her last night and told her to come home, but you know what Anne's like. I might as well not made the call. (laughs) 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 You know, that's the way mothers speak, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, I just think there are so many many dimensions to this woman Mm. which are the reason why there's such an outpouring of genuine grief at at her Mm. passing. We, We did imagine, you rightly said, that she'd sort of, after she'd met Liz Trust, that she'd most probably be here for some time to come. Mm. But it's not the case. And I think that Charles has got a very, very difficult job now to bind the Commonwealth Mm. and the nations together to maintain that kind of respect for the monarchy that she had. And His transition, though, was was quite distinct, wasn't it, Mm. on on Friday? Yes, and his his abandonment of all those previous causes... Mm. Was was resolute. I think mm-hmm. I, I had I had no doubt from the start that Charles will rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. I think Tony Abbott said, uh, said in he his did, piece yes. on the day, mm-hmm. you know, Charles will, Charles will will probably not mm-hmm. disappoint us, yeah. and I don't think he will. He's no, been trained well, I mean, for this job. I, Charles, all his life. I think Charles has worried people up until now, talking to trees and going to Glasgow and talking mm-hmm. about climate change. But he made it quite clear in that speech that he's not going to be an interventionist. Uh, monarch, mm. and that he will respect, you know, the constitutional proprieties, uh, and that's important. I mean, one thing that everyone says. I think James Callaghan said, who was the Labor Prime Minister of Britain for three years, and he said she offered friendliness without friendship, and it's a very significant distinction mm. for a leader of that eminence. Prime ministers could go in there, presidents could meet with her. And they knew there was utter confidentiality, mm. that there was no way in the world the Queen would betray any of the confidences they could openly discuss it. And as she got older, of course, the younger Prime Ministers and others felt that it was a sort of a shoulder to cry on, in a sense. Yes. One she of had the, so much experience. One of the Prime Ministers said something like that in the House of Commons, a woman, forgotten which one it was, and she said, Well, I did tell her I did tell her about what was happening and I knew for once by telling her that this wouldn't leak. Yes, <laughs> yeah. If you tell anybody else, That's there's, it. there's a good chance that it will leak. Yes, a wonderful circle. Rather like a being, uh, making a confession to a priest. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Very important thing mm. for prime ministers to have that. 
to be able to do that. There was a wonderful thing. They, they say as Joel, she was just a figurehead that didn't play any role. We had a problem in Australia which dated from, uh, from the Statute of Westminster, which was that the states didn't trust Canberra to deal with their recommendations for who would be governor. They thought Canberra would change the recommendation and put in somebody who would become some sort of a prefect for each of the states. Mm -hmm. This is the origin of the Australia Act in 1986. Yes, Bob and, and from the time of the state of Westminster right through to the Australia Act, the states were almost like colonies in relation to the appointment and removal of governors. They had to put their views to the British government, and the British government would then advise the Queen. Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Republican push is a long, long way from gaining any kind of success. Mm. What people don't understand, each state has its own constitution, mm. you know, so how do you manage those changes? Uh, you could change federally, mm. but you, you've then got to have, and each has a different set of rules mm. as to how the constitution can be changed. Yes. I mean, Victoria's in particular is very complicated. So, I mean, I think all that talk, and uh, it's typical left-wing stuff, yes. uh, all that talk, I think, is really for way down the track. But remember that the Queen solved the problem. There was this this stalemate between the states and the Commonwealth, Labour and Liberal states. None of them would trust Canberra because they knew that they, they wouldn't act as a letterbox. Uh, the, the politicians said, oh, we'll be just like the post office. We'll just pass mm -hmm. on your recommendations. But no state premier trusted them mm -hmm. over that. And eventually the Queen said, well, if the problem, if that's the problem, I'm prepared to be advised not by one Australian, that is the Prime Minister, I'm be prepared to be advised by seven, that is the Prime Minister and all the Premiers. And that's what happens now, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the Commonwealth. It solved the problem of the states being still technically colonies. Mm. And uh, it, it was the Queen herself. Yeah. who made the offer. Well, that, that's her recognition that, that our constitution is a federation of states, would yes. that be right? And it doesn't happen in uh, Canada. Mm. Mm. I think the legacy, I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk about the legacy, and I think the legacy, it's not a complicated thing to discuss. Mm. I think it comes from her sense and abiding by traditions. I'm a great believer in traditions. I mean, I know there are many errors clothed in tradition. We all know that. But tradition does have a role, and she honoured those traditions. She always, which we are most probably mere mortals incapable of doing, she always put duty ahead of emotion. Uh, and so to that extent, through all those travails, she maintained this sense of decorum and propriety and, and a value system that I think we could well uh, adhere to. So I think there are a lot of those abstract things that have tremendous significance as part of the legacy that she leaves with us. How do, I mean, this is, a, we live in a very selfish and acquisitive world. Uh, grab whatever you can mm. get and forget the next bloke. And it's true what you said, the speech in Cape Town, she was 21. She never would have imagined that in four years she'd be the monarch, mm. but nonetheless at that point, she dedicated herself to service, knowing that along the way, somewhere down the track, she would be the monarch. Mm. And it's quite extraordinary that a person should be, could be so unselfish, so selfless mm. in her consideration of others. I mean, even now, you know, the monarch is King Charles. 
how many 73-year-olds could deal with the uh, retinue and the routine Mm. that he's carried out since his mother's death? So you bear the grief and you're one minute in Edinburgh, you're the next minute addressing in Westminster Mm. Hall uh, the condolence motions from the House of Commons. You go back to Scotland and you arrest the Scottish Parliament on the condolence motions. You then have a meeting in Northern Ireland, another one with Nicholas Sturgeon. These are very onerous and demanding routines which he's got to meet, which very few 73-year-olds could manage. And amidst all that, he's healed, tried very uh, nobly to heal a rift within his own family with um, Harry. I mean, he expressed his love for Harry on, on that on, yeah. on, on, in yeah. his first speech. I think it's very ambiguous, that, Fred, very ambiguous, I think. It's interesting he didn't refer to the titles. Yeah. He referred to them as Harry and Meghan. He referred to William as the Prince and Princess of yeah. Wales. He didn't refer to them as Duke and Duchess Sussex. So I, I don't know whether that... You, you, it's hard to solve. Well, it is hurt. hard to solve, but he made an attempt hard, at it. He did make an attempt. It's you know, hard that, to which solve. is harder than most people. I mean, mm. most families, mm. when rifts happen, and I'm speaking very yeah. pedestrian here, but when, when rifts happen in families, they're mm. almost impossible. Hard to heal. It, it yeah. takes enormous nobility to mm. say publicly, yeah. I still love my yeah. son yes. and, and his yeah. wife. And, uh, remember that Badgett, the great uh, constitutionalist in the 19th century, said that the difference between monarchies and republics is that in with monarchies they are doing interesting things yeah. and people are and this is this is normal in a family families yeah. have their ups yes. and downs and you yes. do have all of these yeah. problems in a family it's not so surprising I don't know what's going to happen to the book though I, I do I think that's a, that's the queen wouldn't be the queen wouldn't be mortal and human if she hadn't been wounded and injured mm. by all that stuff that went on in America mm. uh, and I think there is a certain respect for parenthood uh, and family that ought to be observed privately, not publicly. Mm. And if those were private concerns, then they should have been expressed privately. And I think that's what's affected William, I'm sure, and the notion that she said that Charles had lost, the boy, Harry had lost his father. Those are very hurtful and damaging things to say, given that the focus is on every word that's uttered. And I can't help but feel the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, would have been very, very wounded by all that. That's so true. I I remember during the referendum, uh, there was a lot of pressure put on us about the Queen. And nowadays they've they've created another myth. The myth is that the referendum was won because of the popularity of the Queen. You could never win a referendum about a republic because the Queen is so popular. What had happened after the death of Diana was that some of the London tabloids, I think to to distract attention from their their own role in relation to the harassment of Diana, they decided to attack the Queen. And they they were desperately trying to find reasons. They found one with a flagpole. Remember the flagpole over Buckingham Palace flies the standard when the Queen's there. So they pointed a finger and said, the flag is not flying at half-mast. Well, it couldn't fly at half-mast because it only showed the the standard. So they decided to comply with that. And then they said, She's keeping the boys up there in Balmoral. They should be down here in London. Well, it was a decision for the family. It was probably mm. better for them to be with well, the family in Balmoral. She was the grandmother. That's why the fact that she should die at Balmoral and William goes there, mm. and he knows what that means. It brings two worlds together. It yes. was at Balmoral that he learnt of the death of his mother and it was Balmoral that he learnt the death of his granny. And those things well up in any individual mm. and would affect the perspective that William brings to bear on all of this. And, okay, in a public sense, history will show she got all that wrong, 
the outpouring of grief uh, over the death of Diana. I, I suppose it's her one diplomatic era. The, the outpouring of grief required her most probably to speak to her people, but she made her first obligation to the two boys who just lost mm. their mother, and she was the grandmother, so the de facto parent in a sense. But then she was advised by the Prime Minister at the time and by uh, her courtiers that she should get down there. And when she did, she made that speech. She said, I speak to you as the Queen, I speak to you from the heart. And then she gave an appropriate eulogy in relation to Diana to repair that damage, whatever damage had been done. But it, it wasn't an easy decision to make. Mm. Her tribute to Diana was, Diana was really mm. beautiful, wasn't mm. it? I mean... Mm. She was always incredibly positive. It was a lovely tribute. Yeah. I happened to be in London at the time. It was purely, purely coincidental. There was an enormous outpouring of grief over Diana. Mm. But I thought the Queen behaved wonderfully. And I remember we could see, I was near the palace, and we could see and they bowed as the, uh, oh. the coffin went by. It was mm. a very moving moment. And yes. I think Charles is going to make changes to the whole royal structure mm. and I understand that uh, one of the palaces is going to be a museum. Mm. Uh, it may well be Balmoral. Um, people don't understand that Holyrood where, Holyrood where uh, the, the casket has laid uh, for the last less than 24 mm. hours, that's the official royal home mm. of the monarch mm. in Scotland uh, and I think he's going to sort of tidy up quite a bit of all of this. There'll be a few people, I think, in the family, most probably looking for a job. <laughs> One of the things I think we, that the British press particularly is appalling about, and that is this monarchy is self-funded. Mm-hmm. The money comes through yeah. the Crown Estate, mm-hmm. and they tax, they effectively tax the Crown Estate mm-hmm. at 75%. It started out at 85%. They were taking from the hereditary properties the George III and then every successive mm. sovereign hands over to the state. Mm. We don't have much time now. We have to wind up. It's been a wonderful discussion. But what was the highlight of, uh, of your meetings with the Queen? Do you remember something? Yes, I, I, that's easy to answer. I, I just thought I was really staggered by her humanity. Mm. Uh, I thought I was talking to my mother. And what did the boys say afterwards? Well, the, the boys, boys, we were divvied up. Well, they couldn't believe it as well. We were, I should tell you one story. We were divvied up, and in the middle of my conversation with them, which was quite extensive, and Cameron and the crap was with me because he couldn't go anywhere else, mm-hmm. we heard this raucous outburst up here, and I thought, oh, someone's broken one of the chairs in the green room <laughs> or something. And now, this story I can't complete. Uh, however, when we got on the bus... I said, what was all that up there? And Chris Roach said, oh, the Duke told a joke. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry, it was a bawdy joke, which rugby players love. (laughs) The Queen most probably. I'm sure she's heard a few of those jokes herself. But no, to answer your question, just her sheer humanity, uh, a woman in that sort of pinafore dress she had, I can remember quite clearly, and a belt, and there she stood and talked talked about Anne in Delhi, about the death of Indira Gandhi and about getting your leg broken playing football mm. and Edward and Philip, she referred to them, and Anne. It was just like talking to a mother, this, the sheer humanity, the unpretentiousness of the woman. Mm. Wonderful. And that affected the boys. Oh, the boys. yes. Oh, gosh. Overwhelmed. They remember to this day. Yes. 
What about you, though, David? You met her. What was your... Well, I met her, but it was very much in passing. And mm. uh, But I, I found her a very beautiful person, mm. very kindly, very considerate and uh, absolutely charming. Mm. I just didn't have the opportunity that you have when you're a rugby coach. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have some better than <laughs> <doing. laughs> The best, I understand. <laughs> what are you doing for nothing? <laughs> These days they get paid a fortune. <laughs> well, on that point, I think we really have to wind up. I do appreciate your contributions and My your pleasure. stories are absolutely wonderful. My pleasure. As, as most of your stories, all of your stories, I, I can't think of a story that Alan's told about which I haven't been entertained or moved. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, no doubt, Fred, you'll be telling me some too. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got to know you recently. Well, exactly, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, this It's been is, a pleasure, David. Thank you. And we will all remember, the nation remembers and we will treasure this wonderful queen. Weren't we lucky to yes, have lived we were in so her fortunate. Mm. Yeah. And uh, on that point, uh, I shall close this, uh, this wonderful, wonderful retrospective and tribute to the queen. Mm. And this has saved the nation and we're being broadcast on ADH, the exciting new platform, mm. which these young men, these wonderful young men have established.